0: Welcome to the 379th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome Jenny Pickerel, Professor of Environmental Geography and the head of the Department of Geography at Sheffield University a reminder, you can usually catch COVID calls live on weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. Today is a special COVID calls episode at 5.30 p.m. Korea time. You can hear COVID calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or COVIDCalls. As always, please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics, and feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, November twenty second, two 2021, there are 5,150,568 deaths globally from COVID-19. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. This is the obituary of Grace Macagnola. This is written by Cecilia Macagnola and appeared on the 10th of November 2021 in The Guardian. Grace Makanyola, who has died at age 60 from COVID-19, was a nurse and NHS manager and a health advocate in the UK and Malawi. An altruist with a strong Christian faith, she was committed to serving others. Born in Mangochi on the shoreline of Lake Malawi, Grace was the daughter of Kapito Mitmuni, who headed the Southern Region Forestry Department and Inelas Ne Sepanga Robin, her mother. Her fortunes changed dramatically at the age of seven when Capito died. Following custom, her uncle intended to assume his brother's possessions, which to his mind included his widow. Nellis fled to an isolated village, Chingale, with her children. When her elder brother briefly fell ill, money was freed up for Grace to attend school for one term. However, once at Masangola Secondary School, she secured the first of many scholarships to go to college. She graduated as Nurse of the Year in 1982 from Camusu College of Nursing. In 1983, she married Aubrey Macagnola, a chartered accountant. And the author of this piece, uh, Cecilia Macagnola, was born the following year. In 1985, dad's work relocated the family to England and we eventually, she writes, settled in South End, Essex. Grace became a founding trustee of Malawi Healthcare Support UK, hosting its first fundraiser, an African fashion show in our garden. Dad returned to Malawi in 1992 and died there eight years later. The tiny community of Malawian, Zimbabwean, and Nigerian health workers in Essex supported Grace to work her way up from staff nurse in South End Hospital to become the assistant director at Westminster Primary Care Trust by 2008. Career highlights include Grace establishing two of the first walk-in centers in the country for Hammersmith and Fulham Primary Care Trust, welcoming the then Prime Minister Tony Blair to the Parsons Green one. She retained a soft spot for Blair, crediting new labor for the conditions in which a black immigrant single mother could excel. Grace also led her team at Westminster to win the 2006 UK Social and Healthcare Award for Innovative Leadership. In 2011, Grace retired to Malawi to the home she had built in Kalambuka, north of the city of Zomba, and cared for her mother. She volunteered as health director across five centers in Zomba before serving as country director for the charity Maternity Worldwide in Malawi. Her work caught the attention of the fashion designer and philanthropist Brunello Cuccinelli, who was involved in the Italian charitable group Amici del Malawi de Prugia. And he sponsored the founding of her organization, Malambe Health and Social Trust, on her birthday in 2018. Her warmth, dedication, and selflessness are felt throughout the trust. Malawi's Italian community and this philanthropic connection introduced grace to a culture she came to love. Italy became one of many places she could call home. Such was her talent for making friends into family. The obituary of Grace Macagnola, written by her daughter Cecilia Macagnola, which appeared in The Guardian. Okay, I'm excited to turn to my conversation for today. And this is one that uh, had to be rescheduled. And I'm so glad that my guest was willing to, to join me with the rescheduled date. Jenny Pickerel, let me introduce her. She's a professor of environmental geography and head of department of geography at Sheffield University in England. Her research focuses on inspiring grassroots solutions to environmental problems and in hopeful and positive ways in which we can change social practices. She is the author of three books, Cyber Protest, Anti-War Activism, and Eco Homes, and over 30 articles on themes around eco-housing, eco-communities, social justice, and environmentalism. She's currently completing a book on eco-communities, the title Eco-Communities Living Together Differently. Annie Pickerel, thank you so much for joining me on COVID Calls. Thank you. Let me start the way I generally do, just to find out where you're calling from and what the situation looks like there in regards to the pandemic.
1: Yes, I'm in uh, Sheffield in England, um, and the numbers in Britain are are quite horrific. So we're about 40,000 new cases every day. Um, And of course, every death is too much. So uh, I have the unfortunate um, situation of living in one of the countries that decided to open up and remove all restrictions. Um, so there aren't even mask mandates here anymore, um, and we are absolutely living through the consequences of uh, of that.
0: Are there any local modifications uh, available uh, if local officials want to challenge that, or it's now national policy?
1: It's very much national policy. I think I think technically some of the local public health regions could. Uh, instigate some changes but it's all advisory and I think that's the big problem so you're advised to wear masks if you're in a crowded area but they've removed all the legal restrictions which means that the vast majority don't Uh, and what we are consequently experiencing is is a spike in numbers particularly of children at schools where there aren't any um, restrictions anymore any protections for them and then that's rippling through the adults that care for them
0: the basis of that kind of a, a policy, or I guess a non-policy, maybe to a certain degree, is the vaccination rate, or generalized sense that political officials feel fatigue in the land, or what? How do you how do you read that there?
1: Well, the the government says it's because we have high vaccination rates, and we do. A large numbers of the population now have been double vaccinated. Uh, many now over forty can get a third booster. So. In that sense, the the government policy is uh, we'll vaccinate our way out of this, uh, but also that's driven by the belief that the economy can't take any more lockdowns. So the current government is basically anti-lockdown and thinks that we should live with COVID, Um, of course for those of us who have to live with COVID, uh, the consequences uh, feel quite out of control, I would say. And and many people uh, are struggling um, with the risks that come with that.
0: Every time I think I've got my mind around this pandemic, we move into some new phase, and, and I'm in South Korea. And, you know, I don't think you find anywhere in the world that managed the test, track and trace method, as well as this country has, You're very slow to get vaccine. And so the vaccination rate is now catching up, caught up, surpassed the United States. Um, but they introduced just this month also this, what they call with Corona, living with Corona. Mm-hmm. And the the rates within the context of South Korea have gone up dramatically and in, in really scary ways. And it's, uh, it's hard for me to parse that. I guess the sense that that the vaccination rate is what will, that that's to be expected and the vaccination rate is what keeps it from becoming a, a mass casualty overflowing hospital kind of event. But at this stage, i got to be honest with you, it's a scary moment.
1: I mean, I agree. And missing from all of these conversations are the personal stories of people who uh, catch COVID, how we protect those who are more vulnerable, who can't necessarily get vaccinated We've in, fe- in fact, kind of relied on people self-isolating if you're in any way disabled. And and also long COVID, that's not in the conversation at all. And as we know, um, we don't actually know why some people suffer long COVID and others don't. So we've we've created a situation that might make sense to a government. um, But for those who live with it, it, it's risky in so many ways. And because there are no mandated protections. It's hard for us to know how to protect ourselves. Let me ask you,
0: Jenny, if you wouldn't mind sharing with us a personal memory of this of this time. Something that really kind of sticks in your in your memory when you think about COVID nineteen.
1: Yeah, it's a very personal one, but I think it it it's worth sharing because I suspect many have have struggled with this. Very early in in the pandemic, um, my brother contracted covid his whole family did um, many of them it was like a mild flu but for him it wasn't um, and i really can't remember anything more terrifying than being stuck 250 miles away realizing that he he couldn't breathe to the extent that we couldn't speak on the phone um, there was nothing i could do because i was not allowed to travel the ambulance service was already overwhelmed at that time they did come and see him, but they said, "You know you're not you're not crucial enough to take him to hospital yet. Um, that's good in one sense, um because ultimately he survived. But I think that that feeling of of utter helplessness when a loved one is struggling to breathe, and you don't know what direction that's going to go in you don't know how severe it is. Um, and you are worried that the whole infrastructure of the country is not going to be able to cope with this. It it just—that's what shapes my approach to COVID ever since, which is to really remember that all of us, all of us have a a story like this in some sense. Um, We've all endured a really horrific time, Um, and and it's not over yet. So that that kind of memory is still very current. Yeah,
0: thank you so much for sharing that. I'm glad your brother's okay. Yes, he is. No, no lingering.
1: He fully recovered, and and that's wow. again amazing, and, and I'm forever thankful.
0: That experience of distance and um, talking with loved ones who obviously are laboring with breathing, others have shared experiences like that. It's um, it's not the kind of thing that we figured out how to quantify. I mean, I'm glad we haven't figured out how to quantify that, yeah. but it's very real. Yeah. So. Um, Okay, well, I, there's a lot of uh, thank you for sharing that. I was taking a second to let that to let that settle in, and um, the um, you have your own research which I want to talk about, but you you're writing about pandemic burnout is what came into my consciousness first, and I just want to and I'll put up the link here in a second. You published a piece in August of this year called um, Pandemic Burnout Will Slow Restart of Research. This appeared in the um, uh, Times Higher Education and people can can find this piece, August 18th, 2021. It's a a piece we were chatting just for a moment before I came on. I felt like this was the one, like everybody was sort of like struggling to say this, the right way to say this, as we were coming into this new academic year and uh, you said it, and you said it exactly right. So maybe you can tell us why you wrote this piece and what was some of your objectives in giving voice to this fear of, of academic burnout and what that meant, particularly from a, like a researcher's perspective.
1: Yeah, I really felt like um, at that time, the certainly in Britain, the government was talking about COVID being over, uh, that we're gonna live with COVID. Uh, our academic term starts in September. The university um, was planning to uh, treat everything as back to normal, um, both in how we teach and how we research. So I really felt like the expectations had shifted from uh, a year of um, quite clearly being in crisis to uh, the expectation that we were just going to slip back into everything being normal again. And that really worried me because actually we were still very much in the middle of the crisis, but also that most of us were still um, psychologically processing what had happened and um, how we might um, come out of it, to be honest. And then I also felt that um, some people, uh, the government particularly, um, were treating in Britain the university staff as if um, we had somehow been lazy. Um, that online teaching during the pandemic had been easy um, and that we'd had lots of free time and therefore um, we should have produced more research, we should have done more. So while it was really important that the unevenness of the impact of COVID um, was acknowledged, it it was more than that. It was that even if we hadn't had care and responsibilities, we'd been doing all this teaching. We had absolutely been holding these universities together by doing additional work and additional effort. And that wasn't being acknowledged. Instead, um, we were having uh, additional expectations put on us at a time when most of us hadn't done any research for a year. So I really wanted us to just collectively think about what we'd been through and therefore the likelihood of us um, snapping back into normal just seems so unrealistic.
0: There's so much in that. And, and I wanna kind of come to the different points of it. One of which just to, you know, talk a little bit about expectations of researchers. And those who are not, I mean, a lot of people who watch and listen to COVID calls are academics, but not all. And I think sometimes there is some um, just lack of information out there in terms of like what we're supposed to be. Yeah, we're supposed to teach. And a lot of our contracts say you're a teacher, but you don't get promoted necessarily for that. And you don't even get not fired just for that. There's a lot more that goes into it. So when you talk about burnout impeding research, Bring that into the UK context a little bit, maybe your own institution.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I'm very privileged to work at a a British university that that allocates us 40% of our time to do research. So we spent 60% of our jobs doing teaching or leadership, making the university run, and and 40% we are meant to write. We are meant to uh, generate impact by working with the communities that we research and we're meant to bring in large grants um, i think what what's important to note is that often that time is a bit fictional um, It's very normal for us to spend longer doing our teaching, longer um, doing our leadership responsibilities, which can be really important around questions of equality, diversity, and inclusion, or of of, you know uh, setting up new sustainability systems on campus, for example. So the time we get to do research is often quite squashed. Um, We often struggle to literally find the time in a week. And Uh, through that, though, that's one of the main ways we're promoted. Now, at Sheffield University, I have to acknowledge that they have changed the promotions procedure, um, where you have to have demonstrated that you teach well and do leadership in order to get promoted. So it's not just on research. But how we are valued in our careers more broadly is very much research based. And unfortunately, teaching is too often seen as, as a, the side bit, the less important bit. So um, I certainly found that it wasn't just the time we didn't have to do research, it's the focus. Research to me requires a huge amount of creativity, of energy, of, of uh, intellectual space and time. And I don't know how we would find that when we are in survival mode. Uh, and not only are we doing all this extra teaching, but in the time I did have, the idea that I would focus on, albeit to me very important issues around the environment, um, seemed seemed a bit luxurious, really. Um, when it when really you know thousands are dying, it didn't seem like the most important contribution I could make to society at that point. So it was a, it's about time that we get to do research, but it's also about the working conditions, we need to do that research effectively. Uh, and there are quite a lot of structures that we need, um, not just a quiet place to work, um, but, but actually the kind of mental space, the mental health to do good research.
0: Just want to read a couple of lines from the, from the piece that you published. Um, I thought this was incredibly powerful. I mean, you, you say that since COVID started, I'm quoting here, I've taken medical leave three times for burnout. Despite 30 years in academia and plenty of experience of work-induced stress, it's the first time I've suffered from the numbing, paralyzing, disorienting exhaustion of burnout these past 17 months have been about survival. And for many of us, research became impossible. I just want to, like, thank you for saying that and acknowledge the courage that it takes to say things like that. I mean, I speak for myself. I mean, I, I've i had a, a lot of privilege through this time. I was not out putting out fires. I was not saving lives in the clinic. I was not involved in sanitation in the hospital. I was not an essential worker. But everything you said really resonates, uh, I think, for a lot of us. And I think it's okay to say that. That, you know, we don't have to be essential workers, maybe in that sense of the front lines of the pandemic, to also be experiencing stress at the level that can be debilitating. And I just thought you saying that, and I think others have as well, but you said it so clearly that I'm sure lots of people must have written to you and said thank you.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I've literally never suffered burnout before, and any academic will know how stressful this job is. We have multiple expectations on us all the time, and we switch between multiple roles the whole time. So one minute I'm teaching a class of 200 uh, about my research or maybe methods, and then the next minute I'm trying to write a really complicated article, and then I go to a meeting. So we already actually navigate quite stressful jobs. Um, So the recognising that actually that stress had increased, while also recognising our privilege that I got to work from home through most of the pandemic, that actually I wasn't, like you said, on a risky front line. And yet, actually, that caused burnout was really hard for me to acknowledge. I didn't, I didn't know what burnout was. It wasn't until I rang my um doctor and described the symptoms said I don't understand it you know I'm not depressed um and and I obviously I'm stressed so is the rest of the world but what does this mean and I had to literally look it up when he said well you sound you sound burnt out um because I I felt well with my privilege uh, I shouldn't be suffering from that and and that's partly why I shared that story because it wasn't, it's not about pitying me. It was about hopefully opening up a space for others to say, I, I, I have reached that point. And actually, it's important that we name it in order for us to, to not suffer from it again.
0: There's a dimension that you talk about here about being the head of a department. And you're surprised at the expectation placed on you to become a sort of uh, a source of nourishment and care for everyone in the in the department. And I wonder if you could reflect on that a little bit and particularly reflecting on that as
1: um, as a
0: woman in academia.
1: Yeah, so I've always um, cared about my colleagues and uh, I've always seen that's an important part of being an academic, you know, there's, there's an important collegiality where we look out for each other. I think until COVID, despite being head of department before that, there weren't expectations put on heads of department to ensure the well-being of everyone we worked with. And that seemed a completely different level of responsibility. So it's, to me, it's one thing to make sure that people take leave when they need it, to let people, you know, if you spot someone struggling to reach out, Um, but instead there was this expectation that I would somehow maintain Uh, well-being with my colleagues um, at a distance Uh, and that just really unsettled me actually because it seemed to be uh, a lack of responsibility from other parts of the university and as a woman I felt it particularly hard um, because I have always had to resist um, the stereotype of being the, the one who will do the care within academia. Some of the early uh, leadership roles I was given was very much about student welfare or you'll be a good personal tutor. Um, I think there's huge gendered expectations that women will care, that care work takes a lot of effort and a lot of time, isn't acknowledged um and yet you know more of my male colleagues uh, are often left alone because you know they've got their research to do and they've got important work to do um and so I'd already experienced that over many years and to have it again as a head of department uh, without to me the institutional support necessary um it just it felt unfair and and um and uh yes um uh, another sign of inequality to me.
0: I just wanted to, I want to reflect on that a little bit more because I was a department head at the time that the pandemic broke out of uh, history department at Drexel University in Philadelphia. I'm no longer at that institution, but um, I was in that role for the whole first year um, of the pandemic. And um, it was the first time in my career that I was asked As a male faculty member, to provide care—that the first time those words kind of were used explicitly—check in on students. In fact, I think through most of my career, I sort of explicitly or implicitly, at least sometimes explicitly, told, "Don't do that kind of thing. You really shouldn't check in on students. I mean, that's you know, they're adults, and we—and checking in on faculty colleagues—that's a little intrusive. We really shouldn't ask people how they're doing." And then all of a sudden, it's this flip in tone. It wasn't just Drexel, many other universities. I think, it, of course, I agree with the overall, I agree where it came from. I mean, I, I think it probably shouldn't fall to department heads to do that. But reading what you wrote here and, and what you're saying, it just dawned on me. First time as a male member of the faculty, I'd never been asked to do those things before.
1: Yeah. Yeah and I I think obviously I want to care for colleagues but it also came at a point yeah where I'd spent my career pushing against it you know if there's a problem here are the institutional support structures you should go to that's how I was trained again it's not my personal responsibility as an academic to look after an individual's mental health but we we should signpost them to the support they need uh, but it also came at a point where I was struggling and The assumption that a head of department trying to keep a a whole department going through a pandemic would have any spare capacity to take on that additional care seemed really wrong to me. And I think that really did contribute to some of those periods of burnout because at the very moment where I had least capacity, I was asked to take on additional responsibility uh, of a very emotional type. Um, I have wonderful colleagues no one asked too much of me it was it was a kind of it was a broader university policy that felt a, a reach at a very time where I wasn't getting the support I needed
0: what were the kinds of structural things that you think universities could have been providing can still be providing right now so that it doesn't come down to something so individual again I don't think any of us take issue with caring about our colleagues. But a lot of times I notice when we hear about resilience and who's resilient, it's always presented as an individual's own capacity and one individual helping another, when in reality, it's the structures we've inherited that, that make it hard for individuals to cope. What might some of those structures be in a university, you think?
1: The key one is around workload and expectations. Mm -hmm. And it's something actually that um, a lot of universities in Britain have just um, voted to strike about. Uh, What we have is a system where in paper, we have a certain number of hours we're meant to work each week, um, but our workloads don't match that in any sense or shape. Um, And there is absolutely an expectation that we will work additional hours, um, that we will um, put students first, which is not a bad thing, but they take a lot of time, Um, and we will provide sort of endless resources in that sense to keep the university going without really adequate um, uh, support to do the other parts of our job. So that's why the research gets um, squashed, and that's why colleagues work weekends and and late evenings. The university um, could tackle some of those workload questions more assertively. Um, We could, I think, basically we need more staff um, and that is a resource issue. And then broader than that, um, rather than individualise everything, I do think there needs to be better institutional support for when we struggle. Um, We have very limited staff counselling available here. Um, we, We have a helpline. Um, And I I think actually what what more of my colleagues need is counselling or coaching so that they can work out how to navigate what is actually quite a highly stressful job. Um, It's not just a one-off instance of feeling a bit stressed. It's how do we, uh, over many years, navigate a job that takes a lot out of us and what are some of the strategies that we could put in place to support colleagues?
0: I don't know the situation as as well in the UK. Maybe you can you can tell me, uh, of course, in the United States, we've seen a trend of cost cutting and staff cutting. Um, and, uh, you know, state budgets for education have gone down for state institutions and in private institutions that you've seen these pressures as well, except for a small, uh, you know, strata of universities that have no problem with funding under and even they declared austerity in the spring of 2020 some major universities that have no need to canceled searches laid off staff you know many things like that but it it strikes me you know that that's part of an overall i'm talking about the united states here um attack on higher education both economically but also sort of ideologically And it often comes from the right in the United States, but not only. And according to one recent measure of public opinion, sort of like trust or favorable opinion of higher education in the United States had dropped 10 points over the previous decade just before the pandemic. And I wonder if there's a similar trend in the UK. And there's a reason I ask this because there's that on the one side and then the pandemic breaks out. And of course, everybody looks to institutions of higher learning and medicine to figure to provide vaccine to provide the research needed in the moment science communication vaccine strategy logistics and a million other things and so it's just been painful for me to watch I feel like I'm in the opinion box here for a second so I don't want to go too far with this but it's painful for me to watch this attack on these institutions which are really reflections of society at its best I think when they work well and then to act surprised when it's
1: there's challenges to meet the pandemic in the moment. Exactly, I mean, I, I I do think that science is still very much respected in British society and, and scientists absolutely stepped up in Britain in responding to the pandemic, not just in, in literally creating the vaccines, but in, in the number of hours that experts have helped guide um, our policies and, and speak publicly on some of these issues. But the university sector as a whole is suffering from a very similar pressure uh, to the US, um, a move away from um, reliable, consistent funding. We have a very complex picture of relying on really quite relatively high student fees, even compared to the to the US. Um, which then uh, are not always used in a way that supports staff. So because there's a competition for students, there's a competition for their fees, then we spend a lot of money making campus looking nice and adding new, um, new facilities. Uh, but we don't necessarily replace staff when they retire or leave and there has been a real push towards um more short-term posts not as many um adjuncts i think you have in the USA but we have um teaching fellows that aren't that are fully qualified lecturers but aren't called that or paid for that um, and there's been a really interesting fight back against that in britain and some some of the union work has really worked um, to try and resist that at sheffield we're, we're we're really trying not to employ short-term staff and instead lobby for um, open-ended lecturing contracts but in effect there is um, a lack of staffing and a lack of staff support for the work that's required of us and that does stem from a government uh, attitude that somehow we're not we're not as academics, we're not delivering value for money for for society because we're not immediately profit generating. So the university I work at is, um, is a public university in the sense that we are actually a charity. Um, so any money that we generate gets put back into the university or the region. Um, but because we don't operate like a business in the sense the government understands, then, then we're not as valuable. So in Britain, what we... We're no good at, at measuring the value of knowledge, of research, of science, of all the different skills that our students graduate with. Um, we are only good at valuing profit um, and immediate financial outcome, and and that's a battle universities are really struggling to work against, trying to. Um, but I would say that it it that runs through the whole sector. Um, we do have a few privileged universities. But they don't have the same level of um, donations that that some of the universities in Britain do. So uh, in USA, so um, I think we're all struggling with that. Just want to remind folks you're listening to COVID
0: calls, and I'm talking today with geographer Jenny Pickrell, and we've been talking so far about her article "Pandemic Burnout Will Slow the Restart of Research," which appeared in August of this year in Times Higher Education. There's one line in there I want to. I want to take issue or take you to task a little bit in a a generative way. I think, which is, um, you pointed out in the piece that you felt like your research was not immediately going to help us survive COVID, and therefore, to you, it felt used the term futile, an unnecessary luxury at a time of global crisis. And I completely get where that's where that's coming from. And yet, when I look at your body of work and the issues that you're engaged with, Around um, eco communities and around grassroots environmental activism, and I think about COVID from an environmental perspective. I don't know. I don't. I don't think your work is luxury, luxurious at all. It strikes me that um, some of the best analysis I've seen of COVID. So I'm not talking about designing vaccines here. I'm talking about the social sciences. Um, they're ones that help us see this pandemic as an extension of unsustainable environmental change. So uh, I guess that's a, a maybe a little bit of a provocation. I wonder if you still feel that way now that you're, how do you see your work in light of COVID? And I guess my question is, how do we get people to see this kind of work as more urgent?
1: Well I I very much appreciate the uh, starting point there and I and I think that um I think my comment really spoke of my own exhaustion um because obviously I wouldn't have dedicated my life to researching it if I if I didn't think it had some value um but it just felt less urgent but actually um in recent weeks where the whole world has really been talking about climate change much more clearly it's really felt like we could make clearer parallels and um, between, between the urgency of climate change and, and the, the conditions that might have led to COVID, um, happening in the first place and certainly how we've, um, responded to it. So to me, there is that urgency in how we understand, um, the environment and environmental problems. But because I focus very much on those people who are trying to respond to environmental problems and, and climate change, it, there is still lots of hope there. Um, And I think that um, the discussion now about how we respond to climate change, um, it's important that we open up the debate for how severe it is, how real it is, how now it is, especially if you look um, at what's happened in um, British Columbia and Canada, but also that we therefore have those conversations about what next, um, how we might um, live with that, um, and also live differently. Um, so just rebuilding roads uh, can't just be the solution. How can we live differently with this very rapidly changing climate? And I'm hoping that in one small way, my work might contribute towards that.
0: So this is a project you're you're working on finishing now, eco-communities living together differently. So how has COVID, I mean, unless you've already sent it off to the to the yes. editor, in which case maybe there's not a lot you can change at this point. But I'm always curious to talk to scholars in this moment and how COVID either reinforces ideas that they had and even shows them dimensions of it they didn't have, or maybe turned your head and and and, and you changed the analysis slightly. So how's COVID shaped your thinking about these eco-communities?
1: Well, what's been really interesting to me around the COVID question, and it's certainly something that, that we're going to include in the book, is um, so the initial response of some of the eco communities was to close in on themselves um, and put up those borders and boundaries and, and, you know, live that insular life that actually many have been trying not to do. So I think it's it's telling that in a crisis, some reverted to the ways of being that they were trying to work against. For others, it's been very much about this is a moment where we do need um, to reach out to support others, to to reach into our community and and provide basic things like food packages or care to others and to me what's really interesting about eco communities is those generative moments where they see possibilities for changing things with others not just themselves so i'm i'm for me covid has a reminded us really of the importance of looking after others beyond what we might consider our neighborhood our family our responsibility so it extends that notion of who we are as a community.
0: Who are some of the significant actors in this work? The who, are, who make up these eco-communities?
1: Well, one of the really interesting things that I've been working on is how that's changing. So in Britain, for example, eco-communities historically have been quite white, quite middle class, quite well educated, and quite female dominated. Um, so, over the years, that, that's the, those are the people who have been attracted to these places or sought, sought comfort and solace in these places. But in recent years, there's been a much more diverse uptake through particular structural changes, trying to encourage a variety of different types of people to, to want to live there um, through making them affordable, from building them in cities, through changing expectations of what it means to live there. And th- that, to me, is the really hopeful. Spaces where it doesn't matter so much what education you have, you don't have to sign up to a particular set of values or or contribute a day a week to communal work. Rather, they're interested in in building a community with whoever comes along, and and seeing what comes from that. And I think there's a lot of lessons that we can t- take further into particularly cities from that work.
0: We published an article in. Um, Despite everything we were talking about with, with burnout and stress, you've still been very productive in this time. And you published a piece, um, Hopefulness for Transformative Grassroots Change, which came out in March of this year in Environmental Policy and Governance. And just the first line of it, you said the potential of community collective action to respond to the multiple intersecting crises we face has long been a space of hope and inspiration you know, to me, watching and participating in the lockdown in the spring of 2020, and, and I've raised this a lot to get people's perspective on it, it felt like one of the most hopeful things that I had participated in in my life. And and I, and I of course, it was scary, and people were washing their groceries down, and we didn't know. And, and as you said, we're getting calls from family members trying to figure out how they're doing. But it just struck me as people participating around the world in this act of inaction that was really a strong act to take care of people they'll never meet. And that came right after an incredibly wrenching COP season in which there was just a lot of despair around what the the possible impact of IPCC reports and and the, the student marches for climate action had come and Greta and everybody else had sort of gone to IPCC and the US didn't show up, the Australians didn't show up, the Brazilians didn't show up. It was just such a terrible winter. And then of course, COVID followed. I'm I'm laying this landscape just to sort of get your reaction, because you're writing this a year after that. And I wonder how you think about that lockdown period now. Is that one of these moments of collective action? There's others that you see throughout the pandemic that we can build on?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I, I, you know, I think what really struck me was that despite the fear, um, you know, huge fear of unknown, we didn't then know really how this um, disease was spread. So there were all sorts of um, real reasons to just look after yourself and bunker down. Um, But instead, there were all sorts of really um, hopeful examples of people checking on others, checking that people had access to things, sharing things. Um, Of course, there are lots of examples of selfishness as well. And and in Britain, we went a bit crazy for toilet rolls for for some still slightly unknown reason. but I, I you know I, I choose to look at what we did well and how we came together as a group. I'd also say, you know, in the British university sector, the moment Covid hit, we were actually on strike. um we had been spending and um, days on picket lines, and we completely dropped that strike um, immediately and switched into a mode of support for each other and for all of our students. Um, one of my proudest moments was actually, Uh, six months later in September where uh, the government encouraged university students to return to campus um, but we weren't sure what was going to be possible so this is September 2020 and of course unfortunately all the COVID numbers shot up amongst the students that were were back in the city. So my colleagues just rallied together, fundraised and produce COVID care packages that we then collectively um, delivered around the city to the students. It seems like a really small act, but it really mattered. Um, and it and it was just such a wonderful sign that despite us being fearful and worried and not, you know, not really sure what was going on, um, we were able to think of others in that moment.
0: Just a reminder that you're listening to COVID calls, and I'm talking to Jenny Pickroll today. Uh, Jenny, I wanted to ask you, just kind of coming back a little bit to the, some of the structural changes that might be possible in the moment, and, and just to get beyond, maybe into the space where you know the university recedes a little bit, and the sort of funders, you know, government more generally, I suppose, picks up. I, I asked this question in part; it's been on my mind here in South Korea. I mean, this is a country where, um, again, they manage the pandemic very well, but not being able to develop a vaccine, and, and I'm not sure it's a good idea for individual countries to have to be developing their own vaccines, let's put that aside, but but I do think that there will be a change in, in the way research is funded in this country after this pandemic, and I think there'll be a lot more biotechnology funding uh, for good or for ill. That's one of the lessons they've taken in South Korea, is that, the, uh, well, one of the lessons I would take as an American living here is that the United States has been a poor ally in that regard. Um, that's one way to think about how research might change here in the in this context. But I wonder you know particularly from your vantage point, what what do you expect to see in the u k and and what would you like to see again, to get back to some of these questions we started with. So how do we avoid really great researchers either delaying their research, picking up extra work or, or worst case burning out or leaving the profession altogether?
1: Yeah. I mean, that, that's a really large question. And, and there are, there's some really good things that happened in Britain. um, strangely, I don't normally compliment our funders as we do have a large variety of different funders of, of research in Britain and, Having worked in Australia, I've realised quite how amazing that is. But even the large sort of government-backed funders very quickly set up a COVID-19 urgent call. And that didn't just fund um, natural science. It funded social science to look at the consequences of of COVID-19 socially and culturally, but also how we might respond to it. Um, I think that those calls were were very short and and so it was uneven as to who had the capacity to apply for them. But at the same time, there has always been here an interest in the social uh, implications, not just the kind of economic or the science. Um, but I, I absolutely think that now um, I work in a social science department and and that seems to still be able to attract funding. My worry going forward is that the arts and humanities was somehow viewed as less important during COVID. Um, And that I would say is an under threat in Britain at the moment, that somehow there's a shift away from valuing um, important vital disciplines like like history, like archeology, span that of course shape uh, our whole understanding of how the world works, but are somehow viewed as less urgent um so i think the funding is shifting to urgent urgent um issues being defined by um by covid as opposed to that more rounded absolutely essential understanding of the world and what shapes it
0: you know i really worry about that too and and i think there's sometimes a discourse out there that says well we really in the humanities and social sciences have just done a poor job communicating to the world the value of our research and again it's sort of comes back on us. And it's, a, um, yeah, there's some narrow studies out there. But has anybody picked up a copy of The Lancet lately? I mean, narrow studies is what, uh, you know, specialization skill is is about. And so many times, I mean, uh, the research, cutting edge research on, let's say, vaccine hesitancy, um, you know, the, the way that inequality, pre-existing inequality shaped the way the pandemic played out. Uh, The way that conspiracy theory and misinformation has moved us, that research has saved lives in this pandemic around the world. So I don't know how we can get more urgent or relevant, Jenny. I mean,
1: exactly, exactly. And I don't, I, I don't think it should be about disciplinary blame. I think it's a broader question about how we value knowledge. And in Britain, we're fighting against that notion that university um, degrees should lead to immediate, clear employment. Uh, as opposed to um, understanding the value of knowledge more broadly and how that will ultimately contribute to society in all sorts of vital ways, but you might not be able to track it with an immediate large salary at the end of that particular de- degree program. Um, it's a very narrow view of what universities should be for, and, and it's very worrying um, because to imagine a, a society without arts and humanities, without the ability to tell stories, without the ability to have any sense of creativity, it is very worrying to me. We're almost
0: up on time. There was another thing I, I just wanted to ask you about um, You know, dealing with this kind of burnout situation that you're talking about earlier. There are also uh, faculty who have precarious position in the university and graduate students as well. And then in people in associated disciplines in museum work or in creative work that supports what goes on around universities. uh, I wonder, uh, you know, what kinds of suggestions you have made or you're planning to make on how to make sure the next time we face a disaster like this, or as this one goes on, that their burnout doesn't lead to them having to leave their profession?
1: Well, I mean, my first response would be join a union. Um, We have a very active uh, university uh, staff union. Um, And to me, it's the union that will help us um, collectivize and protect these different areas and ensure that they're valued. Uh, It's really important that we look at the university as a whole and don't just make it about individual jobs there needs to be collective movement against what, what we call here casualization or zero-hour contracts, that when we employ people who have a PhD and have years of experience, the very least we can do is give them a livable wage uh, and respect their knowledge um, and include them in the university in, in, as, in as long-term way as possible. Uh, so I think it's really important that that's done collectively. Um, because otherwise it's very easy to target individual disciplines or individual staff. Uh, and that leads to more stress and burnout if you feel like you're on your own and you're fighting for your job rather than a collective sense that uh, that actually this is a broader process um, that we could fight back against.
0: That's very clearly said, and I couldn't agree with you more. I, and the last question I have for you is um, – Will anyone ever wanna be a department head again after this this time? And, and, and that's sort of, I'm trying to be a little bit light, but um, it is an undervalued, I was a department head for many years and I loved it. It's an undervalued role in the university. It's kind of a middle management role, but you, you also, I just think it's a really important role and it can be really, to have a good department head and mentor as I did when I was coming up, made a huge difference in my career but I've never seen anything like having to deal with COVID from the yeah. from the chair's office. So thoughts, <laughs> advice, how are we going to get people to take these jobs going forward? Because it's one of the most important jobs in academia.
1: It really is. and I, And I do feel privileged to do it. And one of my worries about being a bit open about burnout or struggles is that I'm going to put people off. But what I try to do is also share the the bits I love about it and and despite everything, I'm still here um, and I'm still actually enjoying a lot of it. To me, what what I've realised is despite being a middle manager and and there's lots of things you can't control or shape, you do have quite a lot of leeway in a British university uh, to change your department, to lobby for certain types of resources to um support colleagues and to make a difference and that's the stuff that's kept me going and i really hope that um that we can we can respect the role that a head of department needs to do um and, and not make it into something that you do alone so the reason that i'm still here is we have an absolutely wonderful senior leadership team so again coming back to the collective To me, the university works if we do it collectively and we don't expect one person to take the weight of everything on their own. Just want to remind
0: everyone you've been listening to COVID calls and you can usually catch COVID calls at 6 p.m. Eastern time. Today's a special COVID calls episode at 5.30 p.m. Korea time and 8.30 a.m. Sheffield time, which is where my guest Jenny Pickerel has been calling in from and just again to point out her article pandemic burnout will slow the restart of research we've been talking about today and her many other works cyber protest anti-war activism eco homes and a forthcoming book eco communities living together differently jenny thanks for a wide-ranging discussion and for the work you're doing and for um, giving voice to things that a lot of us were trying to say
1: thank you it's been great to speak to you today
0: stay healthy everyone we see you next time on covid calls